Welcome to the Jay Kim Show, Hong Kong's very first podcast focused on entrepreneurship and investing in Asia. Join us as we survey the land and discover the greatest companies and most profitable investment opportunities in Asia. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insights to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. Today's show guest is Ben Jaffe, and he's a general partner at Hacks, the number one acceleration engine for hardware startups and the most active hardware investment fund in the world. He spent over 16 years in Asia, China, Japan, and Korea, and is now based in Shenzhen. Ben is also an angel investor, an active public speaker, and writer, uh, always covering hardware trends globally. In today's episode, we talk about some of the big trends that he sees sitting front row seat in China and discusses a new perspective that entrepreneurs should consider when thinking about joining a particular startup ecosystem. All right, let's get on to the show. Hi, Benjamin. Thanks for joining us on the Jay Kim Show. We're very happy to have you on. Hi, Jay. Thanks for having me. Sure, no problem. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's funny because we are both based in Asia, but right now we are both uh, at odd hours of the day because I know that you're spending some time in Europe. So we That's appreciate right. you com- We appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on the show. Um, you know, we've had... We've had a, a great couple months, you know, with the Rise Conference, uh, you know, two months ago in July. And I think there's a lot of momentum right now in the space and just in, in early stage investing in general and, and, uh, and in hardware and software. So I'm excited to have you on the show. Uh, maybe you can give us a quick introduction. Uh, who is Benjamin Joff and what do you do for a living? Sure. Um, so, um, my, so I'm a partner at an investment company called Hacks. Uh, we're an investment uh, company specialized in the hardware and IoT uh, start early stage startups. Uh, we run an accelerator program in uh, Shenzhen and another one in San Francisco, and we try to be a full stack accelerator to support uh, basically startups from the very first prototype all the way up to scaling. And uh, so far, we've done uh, about 200 investments. And uh, that makes us actually the most active in the category. Um, so more about quickly about my background. So I've been in Asia since uh, the year 2000. I worked in Japan, Korea, China, Hong Kong, a little bit Singapore, Malaysia. I've been in Silicon Valley and mostly in technology. Wow. So you've you've actually been in Asia longer than I have because <laughs> I only moved here in 2005. <laughs> yeah. Despite me being of Asian descent. So mm. what was your... What brought you over here to, at the very beginning? Have you always been in tech and always been in hardware? I, I'm probably, you know, some people, they, you know, very early on, they know what they want to do. Uh, and uh, some other people, you know, it's more like one thing led to another. And that, I'm more in that category. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> when I was studying engineering, I picked up uh, Japanese as a, as a minor and corporate strategy. And that led me. Uh, when I was so I, I'm originally from France, and when I graduated, I wasn't too excited about working in France and joining like the like the standard uh, like large company or consultancy. And I decided to move to Japan to combine my interest in Japanese, my interest in strategy, and my interest in technology. So I worked in Japan for a few years, uh, initially covering different technology sectors, and then in telecom. And then I got curious about Korea, and then I got curious about China, and then you know one thing led to another. 
<laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I meet a lot more one thing led to another guys than I knew what I was going to do from, <laughs> mm. from day one. But, uh, so you're yeah, actually yeah. in Japan. Yeah. You were actually in Japan. I was in Japan in 2003 to 2004, but I was in banking. Oh. So, uh, you're probably there when I was there. Um, yeah, I was there until 2004, roughly, and then I moved to Korea, and uh, it was really a special time, and that really opened my eyes on a lot of things, because, I mean, if you were around at the time, you, you probably remember seeing really advanced mobile phones on great broadband, and uh, a bunch of other things, like ranging from like contactless payments, and all those things that were already mature in Japan, but that the rest of the world were, was basically yet to discover, they all had like brick phones from Nokia and everything, and at the time... Everything that was going on in Japan was described as really like odd and weird and just because Japanese like gadgets and, and, and eventually it just spread everywhere, was reinvented everywhere. And that's where you realize that innovation uh, happens really all, all, all around the world. And uh, what, what's actually the challenge is to bring innovation from one place to another and uh, find how to adapt to different ecosystems. So that, that's what that taught me, among other things. Yeah, it's been an exciting sort of decade, decade and a half of, of growth globally. Uh, but particularly mm -hmm. I'm excited about Asia. You know, I mean, I was, I started sniffing around the, uh, early stage startup scene, uh, in around 2008, 2009 after the financial crisis. Uh, you know, my, the company, the investment bank I was working for went under. So, uh, mm. I had some free time. So, uh, but I remember at the time there was no scene here in Hong Kong for sure. Very, very mm. nascent. And so I spent a lot of time flying back and forth to Silicon Valley, just trying to learn, educate myself on, on, uh, tech and this sort of thing. But, um, it, it's come a long way from there and I'm very excited about that. And, uh, you know, that's, this is evidenced by things like rise this year was huge. Um, you know, it yeah. seems to get better and better each year. Um, so, so let's talk about a little bit about, um, about hacks and your, your journey that led you there. Uh, I guess after you were ar around the region for a while. Um, when did hacks, uh, start? Did you, st did, were you one of the starting, uh, partners or so, did you join on, uh, shortly, shortly I after? I joined, I joined shortly after. So hacks started at the end of 2011. The first investment, uh, happened in 2012. Uh, at the time I was uh, running a consultancy. I had started in Beijing covering, mm -hmm. uh, researching innovation in digital space across uh, Asia, mostly Japan, Korea, and China. So I had a team of consultants working with me, uh, Japanese, Korean, Chinese, and we're working with international clients. And on the side, I had started to do some angel investments because I enjoyed a lot working with early stage startups and, and founders. And uh, the founder of Hacks, uh, is actually two founders. One is more of an operations guy and another one is more uh, like basically the, the um, uh, entrepreneur who had exited a company already uh, went IPO. Uh, so his name is Sean O'Sullivan. And the, uh, the operations uh, guy is named uh, Cyril Ebersweiler. Uh, so one is American, the other one's French. And he invited me to, uh, to uh, basically help uh, basically select startups. And eventually, you know, one thing led to another. I said, okay, well, I don't really know anything about hardware. A mechanical engineer by training, but really I mostly did strategy on the and uh, anyway, so he said, well, actually, that's you, you understand startups and strategy and don't worry about the technology aspect too much because we got that covered. Uh, what we need to make sure of is whether the entrepreneurs make sense and, and whether the business makes sense. And that, mm -hmm. that's where we need help. So 
I started to help uh, first uh, select companies and uh, eventually basically roped me into the whole program and I moved to Shenzhen and uh, I discovered the ecosystem and I was just blown away. Like what I had seen in Japan with the, like the mobile revolution, what I had seen in Korea with the broadband and online gaming and social networking revolution, all those revolutions were eventually very, very local. But in Shenzhen, here was for the first time an ecosystem that had really direct global relevance. And it was already relevant for big companies for quite a while. And uh, it was kind of the secret garden. Like all the big companies were making their stuff there. But for startups, that was really a novelty to be able to access that supply chain. And that's what Hacks tried to enable. And I felt this was really a chance to combine global ideas, global innovation, global entrepreneurs with the best ecosystems that were so far mostly the, uh, the kind of property of big companies. So I joined and then um, I joined for the fourth batch of the program. We're still very early on. Now we're about to start the 11th batch. Wow. And I would say at that time, we're doing a lot of consumer electronics, uh, like more simpler products, mostly because the, the ecosystem itself around the world, 2012, 13, was still, you know, you know, Fitbit was a novelty, right? Um, right. But today, Fitbit is a commodity. So a lot of things have, uh, have advanced a lot. And uh, the projects we do today, we didn't even dream of doing them at the time because first, they didn't exist. Second, they would have cost a lot of money. But now a lot of things have changed, made this affordable, faster. And we, we now do a lot of uh, uh, health tech, a lot of robotics, and a lot of really, really exciting stuff. And I really get a sense that we get to see the future before the rest of the world because the startups we work with have a prototype with three or four founders and by the time it gets to market to a scale where it's noticed, that's going to be in four years, three or four years' time. So, you know, the future is not evenly distributed, right? Right. Uh, that, that's a good point. Um, you know, it's funny, uh, Ben, when, when you talk about investing into startups, uh, it, it, there's a funny, I think there's a funny uh, bias for people that aren't that familiar with hardware. They shy away from it. So I'll just take from mm. my personal experience when I was, uh, you know, I did a handful of angel investing and I, I do a little bit of, of, uh, of investing with a partner now, but it's very, you know, we don't do that much anymore. But when we were actively seeking out invest, investor investments into companies, um, I think it's just a natural bias for, for people to think that, oh, hardware, it takes a lot longer to push the market. And whereas software, you can, uh, you know, it's all theoretical and you can kind of pump up the valuation and you can hope for a quick win that someone will pick it up. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's just a, you know, it's a naive, naivete of, of a, an investor before they actually, uh, you know, learn about, uh, hardware. But the, the cool thing about hardware, I always thought was it's, it's mm. hardware. It's like you can actually get a physical product. Um, and I think that's, that's probably one of the reasons why, uh, you know, crowdfunding uh, took off, pre you know, pretty popular. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very, yeah, I agree. Like hardware is very appealing because it's tangible. And mm -hmm. uh, I think, Probably deep down, we're still kind of apes and we like to touch things. But also, if you actually want to act on the physical world, there's really no, there's no way around. Like, you cannot just clicking on an app act on the world. Yeah, there has to be a physical object. Even when you, when you click on a, to call an Uber, a car comes in, right? Right. So there has to be some physical manifestation to really have impact on the world. 
So that's, I think that's the appeal of hardware. Uh, on top of that, you can act on the physical world. You can act on the human body with uh, now digital therapeutics. Uh, we can talk about that later. Um, but I agree with what you say that essentially most people who are not familiar with hardware tend to shy away from it. And for us, it's both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because that means we have very little competition. Mm. Because people are so afraid of it, and also because and they're afraid of it because they don't really have a lot of uh, value add or control or, or ability to understand what's going on. But because we're right in the middle of the like the, the world's biggest component market, the world's biggest electronic supply chain, and because we've done already two hundred investments. We learned a tremendous amount that even normal VCs who do like 10 deals a year might do one hardware deal per year. Right. Like what's the speed of learning when you have that, that little volume? It's impossible. So the, the benefit for us is that we get great deal flow because of the visibility. We get great value add because of our location, our know-how, our ecosystem, or the hundreds of founders that we connect to each other. Uh, but the challenge is that when the startups... Uh, try to go and raise uh, outside funding for seed or series A, um, they have to basically have de-risked their business as much as possible. Uh, in addition, you're right that hardware typically takes more time than software, uh, even though it depends. For example, I worked in gaming. Mm. If you want to make a good game, to make a, a prototype of a game, okay, you can hack something ugly over a weekend. Then a, a little bit cleaner prototype is three months. To make a, good, a decent game, not a triple A, but decent game, maybe a year development, and then six months of tuning of the monetization. That's a year and a half. Right. So that's about the time it takes to build a hardware product uh, on average. And if you uh, actually, if you think of software, you, it, it looks easy because when you launch, you're actually launching a prototype, and that's and then there's, and then people generally clean up the front end. And then they do what what's sometimes called the great rewrite, where they rewrite the entire backend because it was never built for scale because it would be too like it would be too expensive to build for scale from day one. In fact, uh, so you it's something you don't see, but it's happening in the background for almost every startup out there. So they rewrite the entire backend sometimes multiple times, and that actually means that to get a mature product, it takes also probably uh, one or two years. So it's it's interesting, but uh, I'd say with hardware that it's much more visible, and you have like cutoff cutoff um, events such as uh, you know when you finish your design for manufacturing, then you have a, a spec freeze. You can't change things so easily. Um, there's stuff you can change uh, when you do over-the-air updates with software, but the hardware itself is kind of done, uh, and you have to kind of live with it. Or you can iterate sometimes, uh, make some tuning with different batches, but overall you have to uh, to accept that this is the way it's going to be. For, for some time. That's a good point, Ben, because it, you really push, you're raising the standard of your minimum viable product, right? You can't just push something out the market that looks bad, you know, aesthetically even, mm. right? For, for hardware. Yeah. So. It, it, yeah, absolutely. I think Apple like raised the, the expectations of people. People expect Apple quality products, even when you're a tiny startup with like three guys mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, half a million dollars in funding. Um, it, it's tough uh, for, for early stage guys. Um, and on top of that, it's not just the design, you know, the, the, there's all sorts of certification for, for electronics because, you know, hardware, hardware can kill, <laughs> in fact. Uh, so it's, uh, it's potentially dangerous. So it depends on the, on the product, but, uh, 
you know, it's um, there's I'd say higher higher expectations, higher requirements, and it's also it makes it means it's a more difficult thing to do, but it also means that uh, you have less competition. Uh, when you do a, like a photo app overnight, you can have a hundred competitors just do almost the same because your product is very very out there and visible unless you have some really complex algorithm in the background. But other than that, like a lot of consumer web and, and consumer mobile is a uh, has almost no barrier of entry. Right. Um, that that that's also a good point. Uh, although I feel like because of um, sort of the uh, opening up of Shenzhen, if you will, and and uh, the accessibility now, that time uh, probably has reduced in the past for let's say a competitor or a copycat to come up uh, mm-hmm. and and just hack together, if you will, a a, a hardware solution that can compete against uh, an idea that they sell out in the street. But yes, you're right. It, it it'll take. Uh, significantly longer, I, I would think, than than pu- pulling together something uh, that's just software. Yeah. Um, so what what you yeah. what you say about copycats is a question we get very often, and obviously that we care a lot about as investors. Um, and the reality is that out of our two hundred investments, we had almost zero copycats. And the reason is that for most of them, the complexity is actually in the software, and a factory can replicate your electronics can replicate the, the the form factor of your product but if you have like a robot that does something even a little bit smart it's actually quite difficult and almost pretty much impossible because there's science and research that factories uh, don't have as a skill set so it's it hasn't really been a problem uh, the stories you hear about copycats is generally for very very simple things like a fidget cube or, or some other reasonably simple products Right, right. The ones you see on the street, like uh, pedaling around in, in Hong yeah. Kong. Yeah. Um, so, so Ben, maybe you could give us some uh, insight to the listeners that maybe the aspiring entrepreneurs that uh, possibly are, are looking for funding uh, from, from your company, from mm. your fund. Um, what are some of the key metrics or, or things you, you look at when you are investing into a startup? You know, I know that... Mm-hmm. Uh, you have an engineering background, but you're also uh, good at, at, I'm sure, at spotting teams and founders. And uh, so, you know, there's a there's a big debate on founder versus the idea. And I think uh, mm. most people lean towards betting on the founder and, and making sure that uh, he's someone that, that the investor can work with. What are some of the things that you guys look for um, when you guys are, are looking to make an investment into a company? Yeah, I think probably a lot of investors would tell you very similar things in that sense that first a team needs to get your attention. So they can get you... Generally, what gets your attention is the idea. And it could be like a little bit crazy. It could be a little ambitious, could be outrageous. Um, Or uh, sometimes you can get your attention with a very high profile founder team that is doing something that might look mundane, but is potentially good business. So we're trying to find the right balance between... um, Actually, we try to, to... basically get uh, at the same time a, a strong team working on something that makes sense. But the most important for us is the team uh, because now we're quite confident that if you don't come up uh, with a concept that's totally stupid, um, we can help you tune it uh, so that it makes sense um, as long as uh, it, initially we're, we're targeting a large enough market. 
Um, now, uh, we also like to see teams that have technology that's not easy to replicate. So these days, we have a lot of roboticists, uh, a lot of machine learning people. We have uh, uh, medical doctors uh, in teams. Um, so the level, the quality of the teams have really gone up a lot. Um, and um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's basically looking at the same time at the team, the idea and the market, uh, the prototype is also a good proof of what the team can do because at the stage we, we're investing in, it's only a prototype. So there's basically no metrics uh, in terms of, uh, you know, revenue or usage uh, generally. Um, but I would say the thing that convinces us the most is if teams have talked to their cust- to potential customers and if customers are ready to write checks. Hmm. That's pretty much the bottom line, right? If if, yeah. if customers are knocking on the door demanding the product, then that's a pretty good uh, a sign, right? Mm. Um, so exactly. so so what's the uh, what is uh, what's the what's sort of the process whereby um, a company can uh, do they have to go through your accelerator in order to get an investment, or do you do just direct investment as well? Um, basically 90 plus percent of all investments are via the accelerator. Um, and the reason is that uh, it helps us get to know the team and also increase their chances of success because they, t- they, sp- they spend time with our team and we have close to 30 people now as a support team in Shenzhen. And, but they also get to enter our ecosystem and meet a lot of other founders. So in our office, there's about 100 founders of hardware startups coming from all around the world uh, you have like PhDs in this and that. You have uh, doctors and uh, uh, you have alumni teams also. Like let's say you do a consumer product and you think about doing a Kickstarter, just walk around our office in Shenzhen. You can talk to three teams that raised over a million dollars. And, wow. you know, it sounds like it might sound mundane, but there's just a hundred such startups in the world. That's it. And we've uh, 11 of them came, came out of Hacks. So this is just an example if you do consumer and you, you want to do crowdfunding, but anything you need, like I have a little anecdote, kind of a funny story that uh, the, a team was kind of struggling because they were trying to find the right glue for two particular materials they were trying to glue together. And they, so they couldn't just use like super glue because they needed something that was a food grade, uh, no smell, uh, waterproof. Uh, so there was all those constraints and they were basically starting to uh, look into buying tons of different glues to test them with their materials. And then uh, another team walked by or they discussed during, uh, during a break. And uh, we also have like some uh, uh, exchanges where teams like share their techno- technical challenges with other teams. And another team said, oh, we should, you should talk to a glue guy. I was like, <laughs> so they were like, what, what do you mean? You have a glue guy? He said, well, we have a team member. They had the exact same problem, so he researched a bunch of glues. So now he's a, he knows a lot about glue. And uh, it was just, you know, two, two desks away. And the guy solved the problem in 10 minutes. That would have taken days. And that's just one aspect. Like, they've really, the benefit of Shenzhen and uh, the Hacks ecosystem is, about, is really all about speed. Uh, if you can do a prototype every week instead of one per month, you just go so much faster. If somebody can solve your problems with a 10 minutes conversation instead of you figuring it out by yourself or looking online it goes much, much faster. And really, time is of the essence for startups in terms of time to market, in terms of burn rate, in terms mm-hmm. of a competitive advantage. So uh, that, that's, really the, that's really the opportunity there with the, the ecosystem we built. That's awesome. A glue guy. The most active 
hardware investor in the world, they have a glue guy. <laughs> Need a glue board. guy. That's, that, that's enough uh, of a compelling reason for anyone to want to be a part of that. So uh, being up in Shenzhen, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, sort of uh, what your views on China are, you know, obviously, um, you know, Shenzhen is the, it's called the Silicon Valley of hardware. It's very mm. exciting going up there. Uh, you know, I've, I've been up there a, a number of times this year and, and it seems like every single time I go, it's just getting more and more exciting. What, what's really exciting you about, um, Shenzhen, the scene, uh, China or, or maybe, uh, any, any sort of trends that you see in hardware that really excite you? Yeah. Um, so the, I'd say the most exciting about Shenzhen to start with is uh, just the energy and the speed. And as you, as you mentioned, like every, every month, every month after month is getting better. The ecosystem getting more entrepreneurs, more cool startups, the suppliers, the, the whole supply chain is improving very, very fast. And there's also like a pretty good support from, uh, from the local government to actually encourage that so that they're very welcoming to startups. And that's great. Um, overall, in China, I think there's just an incredible entrepreneurial energy. Uh, I mean, the country is still growing really fast. Uh, there's now lots of engineers. The infrastructure for, for technology are built. You have great mobile networks, great internet networks. So in terms of ecosystem to deliver services, it's amazing. Uh, and also because of the incredible resources they have to build physical products, being you know the factory of the world, um, it's actually a really great chance to combine the strengths in software, the strengths in the hardware. And most of the companies in China are targeting the Chinese market, and we do invest in some of those too. Uh, but what I find particularly exciting is to see that China is actually giving birth to globally innovative companies. And the front runners of that, uh, so on the software side, are like uh, guys like Tencent, uh, uh, Alibaba, uh, Baidu, but... Uh, uh, I'd say the mo among the most interesting on the hardware side, everybody knows DJI, but not everyone knows it's from yeah. China. And it's the global leader in you know imagery drones. And it's a really innovative, innovative company. And I think it's just a front runner. There's a wave of – because it's a 10-year-old company already. The, the wave that right. started five years ago hasn't yet been that noticed overseas and will start to be. And, and the wave that's starting this year is going to be noticed in uh, three, four years on the – it's an incredible, incredible amount of innovation that's coming out of China. And that's actually what's interesting that they're not trying to sell it as a Chinese thing. They're trying to be a global innovation. Right. Yeah, it's it's really exciting, I think, as well. And and it's funny how, you know, made in China used to be a, a joke and, and, mm -hmm. and a negative, of negative connotation. But we are right on the cusp where, like you said, um, you know, both on the software and the hardware side, there, mm. it, within the next five to 10 years, you know, a lot of these Chinese companies are just going to be at a global standard to the point where, you know, they're, they'll become household names. And I think that's Absolutely. very exciting, right in the center of that. Which, uh, are there any of your, uh, portfolio companies that you are particularly excited about that you're allowed to talk about? Sure. Yeah. I mean, most of them are announced on the, on public. The, the, the only one, the only group that's not yet announced is the one that graduated a few weeks ago on the, we're having our demo day in San Francisco, uh, mid September. So they will, they will be announced then. Um, but, uh, uh, I'd say the most, uh, the most iconic for us at the moment is a, actually a Chinese company called MakeBlock. And it's a company okay. that does uh, robots for education. So you can assemble your own little robots. They actually expanded to do even like uh, DIY drones on the, uh, that you can program. On the, uh, so it's like for a little bit older kids. 
Uh, and this company is doing fantastic. So they, they came out of Hacks about four years ago. It's a five-year-old company. Uh, mm-hmm. Now they have over 400 staff. Uh, last year, I think their sales was like $20 million. They just raised a Series B oh. of $30 million. Um, the valuation is in the, you know, a couple hundred million. Uh, and it's wow. uh, mo- most of their sales are actually outside China. And that's really an exciting company for that because when you look at their products, you actually have no idea where they're from. You're like, oh, it must be American. And, uh, and there's, <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, to me, like one, one, one metric for quality is, uh, uh, can you sell it in Japan? And actually they just signed a deal with SoftBank to distribute <laughs> their products in Japan because Japan love high quality. Uh, they, 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 they're ready to pay good money, but they want basically over quality. So they're right, very, right. very demanding customers. Uh, but, uh, I mean, SoftBank thought that this product was a good match and, uh, now they're, they're distributing there. And, uh, so that's really good company. Uh, so this one is a little bit, Older type of technology. It's not actually super high tech. They, they do just a very good combination of hardware and software, and they, they grew very fast yeah. and they grew very well. Uh, but if I talk more about like the things that are a bit more out there in the recent graduates, we have one company that does um, a brain stimulation device that helps to treat depression. Oh. Uh, so it's basically using kind of a nine volt battery to send you low currents uh, into your brain so that uh, it, uh, it's basically stimulates your neurons and, uh, and lights up the, the areas that were kind of shut down when you're depressed. So that's uh, recognized as a therapy, uh, uh, effective therapy. But what's really new about it is that they're making a consumer device. And they mm. start with depression because it's a clear pain point. But eventually that could go into you know, stimulating for other things, uh, including performance, memory, and a lot of different things. So that's one interesting company. Uh, we have a number in the health tech that are quite exciting for that. We have also in a, in a digital fabrication, we have a really interesting company called Wazer. Uh, so you're probably familiar with uh, laser cutters. So they cut with lasers. Yes. Um, and those are great for fabrication uh, because you can cut uh, like plastic and wood, but you cannot cut hard materials. So what they've, this team has done is that they created a, a, basically a machine that cuts with uh, pressurized water uh, with a garnet sand uh, that's mixed into it. So it can cut anything. It cuts steel. It cuts uh, ceramic. It cuts everything. And that's a desktop desktop wow. size like bench uh, workbench uh, uh, style. And uh, they went on Kickstarter. They sold uh, for over a million dollars worth of machines. And uh, now they, they're ready for uh, preparing for shipping. So that's really, really good uh, it's a really good tool because it's so versatile. And now you, it means you can work with any material without having to rely on, a, on outside factories. So it's really, really interesting for, for digital fabrication. Very cool. Very cool. Thanks for uh, sharing some of those companies with us. Well, Ben, it's been, uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Um, you know, just a couple of questions uh, as we look to wrap up. Uh, you know, you've been a, um, you've been, you've been a, uh, You've been very insightful today, so we appreciate that. What are there any things that you're working on personally, or or maybe um, at, at Hacks that you that you want to uh, share with the audience uh, right now? I know that you've uh, you know you've you've given a lot of talks, mm. and you're 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 a public speaker, and and you've you've done a lot of writing and this sort of thing. Is there anything personally that you uh, are working on? Yeah, so actually, one I've been look like researching innovation ecosystems for for several years, and I, I wrote uh, a few articles on that and. Uh, I'm trying to understand what what really makes Silicon Valley different or what what are the opportunities for the locations. And initially, I broke it down in a number of parameters, like around market market size, capital access, uh, infrastructure, regulations, talent. 
but a lot of those you cannot really change. And one parameter, um, what kind of eluding me was a parameter called culture around like entrepreneur, entrepreneurial culture. Because, you know, people say, oh, this culture is more like risk-taking. This one is more risk-averse. And I was trying to mm. crack that crack that aspect because you cannot change the size of your market. You can just change your ambitions of what you're going to target. But if, you, if you're in Hong Kong, if you target Hong Kong, it's just the size it has, right? Um, so what I recently discovered or kind of understood is that w- – Entrepreneur, like people are encouraged to be entrepreneurs, but in, depending on where you are, there's more or less risk in doing that. Uh, and it's not just about culture; it's about what's what kind of safety nets and what kind of a what's the what's the penalty for failure. Like, if I ask you to walk on a mm, like, let's right. say I, 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 you know, I, I draw a line with a with a brush on the ground, and I say walk that line, and if you step on a if you step uh, like a, outside of the line, uh, you can start again. At, as much as you want, like, you know, there's no penalty. And then you can, eventually you'll do it. You're, you'll be successful. But if suddenly this is on a beam, like a high between two very high buildings, um, and I say, well, now if you if you step outside the line, you're going to fall and you you might break, break something or die. Uh, and that's basically, I think, what happens in a number of ecosystems that there's, there's no safety nets. And I think Japan is one of those where, if you leave, if you quit your job and you do a startup, then you become some kind of an outcast, and it makes it very, very difficult for you to find mm. a new job. And during the time you're doing a startup, uh, you maybe also don't have a lot of regulatory safety nets. So, encouraging people uh, to be entrepreneurs without having understanding of the safety nets around them is kind of a, I, I eventually feel it's kind of responsible. Um, and so, as an entrepreneur, if you have a desire. Uh, to do something, you have to think, what is the best ecosystem I could operate with that wouldn't be so punitive for what I do? And where, how can I surround myself with a, as many capable people as possible? Because this is what also is going to help you succeed. The more networked entrepreneurs are the ones the most able to solve all the problems and learn all the skills they need to learn. So I think this is something to keep in mind if, um, if you're kind of an aspiring entrepreneur is, if you you know if you want to do fashion if you want to learn fashion you go to Paris you go to Milan you go to New York if you want to do uh, stand up comedy you do, you go to uh, uh, maybe LA New York Montreal if you want to do movies you uh, you go to Hollywood and if you want to be an entrepreneur look at what your ecos- your current ecosystem is offering you what kind of support system exists and how how uh, what's the penalty for failure and if it's not suitable maybe consider um, if there's ways to uh, to access a better one. So that that would be my, kind of my my takeaway advice for for aspiring entrepreneurs here. Um, that's a topic. That's a topic I really uh, that's great uh, man. interested in and care about because uh, I, I'm from France and I've seen the ecosystem in France change radically in the past five years. It was very risk averse, but about five years ago, suddenly there was a wave of entrepreneurship. There was like good role models, uh, supportive regulation. And I think what really changed everything is that big companies started to realize that those startup people were kind of assets to have uh, to hire. Uh, like if you hire somebody from a failed startup, they know both sides. They get to know your company and they get they know the startup world so they can help you access this innovation from outside. So I think that's uh, that's one of the keys to, um, to energize an ecosystem is when you start to see more crossovers between corporates and startups. Yeah, I mean, well, as entrepreneur, you know 
as well as any any successful entrepreneur that failure is essential is necessary to, if you want to eventually succeed right you learn the most from these failures and and you bring up a that that's really interesting the way the perspective that you look at it because i think that asia and you being here is actually uh, it's very fitting for you to be monitoring this because asia has traditionally always had issues with uh, the fear of failure and challenging authority, right? And these mm. are two things that are culturally, uh, very inherent in, 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 for Asian entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see how this all changes and maybe hopefully something like what happened in France happens here, where in five years from now, we, we'll be sitting around laughing about it and you, saying, Hey, we saw the change. Yeah, happen, you, right? you know, the real, the real paradox there is that countries that actually, uh, have high growth, like China, India, they don't have a problem with entrepreneurship. They have almost too many entrepreneurs. The problem is actually more in developed economies because it's right. so stable right. that people are afraid of leaving their job because there's a penalty for doing so. Um, if mm. you can't go back, if you can't get another job because the default result of a startup is failure. Um, and, there's not, and because of that, there's not enough entrepreneurs to provide a, a, a support system so that there's less failures um, so the, the strange thing is that because of that, if education ramps up um, in, uh, in those countries, particularly in China, uh, you will have actually end up having more innovation in developing markets because entrepreneurship is more natural. Because if you join a company, if you join a large company, an established company, you feel that you're missing out on the action. Right, right. We're yeah. all waiting for that uh, that shift uh, to happen globally, but um, yeah, that's that's a good, that's a great point. Well, Ben, thanks so much for your time, man. Uh, it's been really good catching up. Uh, last question is: Where can uh, our audience listening in find you, follow you, connect with you, and maybe learn a little bit more about hacks? Sure. So um, for hacks, it's very easy. You go to hacks.co, H-A-X.co. Uh, as for myself, I tweet at uh, Benjamin Joff, so uh, just my name, and uh, I also write uh, some articles on Forbes, on TechCrunch, uh, around IoT, innovation, ecosystems, and things like that. And I also recommend to take a look at some of the videos we put out and uh, some of the presentations. So we just released a big report about hardware trends. It's uh, over a couple hundred pages. We had, uh, I think, about 20,000 visitors so far. And it's kind oh, of an wow. annual report we publish, and uh, that basically sh where we share our view of uh, you know the hundreds and thousands of companies we see, and uh, where we think uh, things are heading. So this one can be found uh, on uh, either on SlideShare on our, on our account or on uh, hacks.co/hardware-trends. Fantastic! We'll definitely link that up in the in the show notes. Great. Well, thanks so much, Ben. We appreciate your uh, insights, and uh, and we'll catch up soon when you're back in uh, the region. Excellent. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week.
This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under 3 hours a week. Cardio not required. Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness. 